Last Sunday, we started a brand new series called A King and His Kingdom. Jesus, in his three years of ministry on this earth, it's hard sometimes to believe that he accomplished everything he accomplished in three years. In his three years of ministry on the earth, he did a lot of things. And I know that that's a gross understatement. Jesus did a lot of things. But he did, right? He did, he did amazing, epic things. And even if you're not a Jesus follower, you're probably familiar with the things that Jesus is said to have done. He walked on water. He turned, he turned water into wine. There's a lot of water stuff in the Bible. Um, he, he healed people. He healed people of diseases that, that modern science doesn't have a cure for. He rose people to life after they had, had been dead. He himself rose to life after he had been dead for three days. Jesus did a lot of things. But he also said a lot of things. In fact, in the Gospels, the four, the four books of the Bible that tell us the story of Jesus... Of the 90 times that Jesus is directly addressed in the Gospels, 60 of those 90 times, he's called teacher because he taught. And chances are, chances are we are more familiar with the things that Jesus did than with the things that Jesus said. But if if we consider ourselves Jesus followers, we have to be deeply familiar with what Jesus taught because what he says matters. And this series is all about exploring what Jesus said. Now, the reason it's called a king in his kingdom and not stuff Jesus said is because if you start studying the teachings of Jesus, you find his central theme very early on. In fact, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, we get the thesis statement of Jesus's ministry of his teachings. It says, from then on, Jesus began to preach, repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. The kingdom of heaven. Sometimes we see it called the kingdom of God. Jesus' ministry, his teachings, the central theme of what he spoke, of what he taught, is the kingdom. He's always talking about the kingdom. He says things like the kingdom of, of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a garden, or the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who was sowing seeds. The kingdom of heaven was like a man who invited guests to his son's wedding banquet. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who hired workers for his field. The kingdom of heaven is like, is like a person who found a treasure buried in a field. He, he's always telling these stories. We call those parables. Describing this thing he calls the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It's the central theme in the teachings of Jesus. And, and it's, not, it's not just a kingdom. It's his kingdom. It's his kingdom. And he says as much. We see this in, in the book of John, chapter 18. There's this man named Pilate who's a governor for the Roman Empire. He's over the area that Jesus lives. It says, then Pilate went back into his headquarters and called for Jesus to be brought to him. Jesus has been arrested. He's been put through this sham of a trial. And he's been presented to Pilate because the leaders of Jesus' community want him executed. And Pilate's the only one who has the authority to execute. And so Pilate asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus does what he almost always does. He responds to a question with the question. Is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate retorted. Your own people and their leading priests brought you to me for trial. Why? What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. And Pilate says, and it's really a question, so you are a king? He hasn't really gotten anywhere, Pilate. He's he's still looking at Jesus like, who are you? I don't know what to do with you. I can't figure you out. See, the the Jewish leaders said that that Jesus was proclaiming to be a king, which is grounds for execution because 
Rome already had a king, the emperor. And if you said you were a king and, and you were trying to oppose the emperor, well, then you would be executed. But Pilate can't quite figure out what Jesus is talking about, and Jesus is really clear. My kingdom is not of this world. Essentially, he's saying, look, the emperor doesn't really have much to worry about. Not right now. My kingdom is not of this world. But notice that he says, my kingdom. It's his kingdom, which makes him a what? A king. And just in case we might think he's speaking metaphorically, he says in Matthew 28, verse 18, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. That's a bold claim. I try to think of the places I have authority in life, and there's a few, you know, whether or not that authority is recognized or respected, that's different, but like, there's a few places that I have authority. Jesus says, everywhere you look, I have authority. Wait until it's dark tonight, walk outside, look up at the stars, Jesus has authority there. There is no place, there is no place where Jesus doesn't have authority according to his own claims. Those are bold claims. Many choose to reject those claims, ignore those claims, but Jesus himself says, I am not just a king. There have been a lot of kings. He says, I am the king. He's, he's always talking in this kingdom language, and sometimes we don't even see it. Like, it's the central theme in his teachings, but we have this tendency when we read scripture, we, we read it here in our culture today, 2,000 years after the fact, and we, we take all the things that we think and we know and we put it into the story. And it causes us to see things that aren't there and not see things that are sometimes. So a great example of that is actually something we talked about last week. Matthew chapter 16, Jesus asks his disciples this really important question. It's a question that all of us have to answer for ourselves. Who do you say Jesus is? He says to his disciples, you know, who do the people say I am? And, and they have good things to say. Oh, you're a prophet. You're someone really special. You're from God. And he's like, okay, that's fine. But who do you say I am? And Peter actually says, you're the Messiah. We would say Christ. The word Christ means Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. You're not just a person. You're not just a prophet. You're not just a teacher. You're the king that we've been waiting for. You are the son of God. And when Peter says that, Jesus responds in verse 17. You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And by the way, Peter means like little rock, like a, like a pebble, okay? And Jesus says, and upon this rock, and he actually uses a different word there. It means like a solid rock, a foundation rock. Upon this rock, I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now let's leave that up for just a second. Because that last statement he says, we read that and we say, okay, what does Jesus mean by rock? Is Peter the rock? No, he's not. Again, two different words. The rock that he's referring to is the declaration that Peter has made. The acknowledgement that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is the king, that he's the son of God. Upon that rock, that declaration, he says, I will build my church. Which, by the way, is so, it's so important for us to realize that as Jesus followers, I know not all of us in this room are, but, but the majority of us are. Many of us are probably thinking about it if we're not. We can, never, we can never backtrack on that declaration. We can never diminish who Jesus is. When we talk about Jesus in our world, we have no reason ever to back off of the boldness of that claim that Jesus Christ is the King of kings, he is the Lord of lords, he is the Son of God, he, he is God. That's the rock, that's the foundation, in other words, that our faith is built on, that declaration. 
And he says, upon this rock, I will build my, my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. Now, when he says the word church, we read into that, right? We think of, of this experience. We think of, of worshiping together and, and bringing offerings and learning and, and all of those things. We think of church. But, but language is an interesting thing. The word that Jesus uses here that we translate church has, has come to mean that over time. But the actual word he uses in the Greek language is the word ekklesia. And the word ekklesia literally translates the called out ones. So if you're a Christian, you've been called out. You've been called out of an old life. You've been called into a new life. Now, in their culture, that word specifically referred to government. The ecclesia would have been the Roman Senate. The ecclesia were, were the assemblies of people who were called out to govern, who were called out to carry out the, the laws of the land. And so when, when the disciples heard Jesus say, upon this rock, I will build my ecclesia, none of them would have thought of the synagogue. None of them would have thought of, of worshiping and, and someone teaching from one of the, the Old Testament scrolls. They wouldn't have thought of, of sacrifices and offerings. They wouldn't have thought of that at all. It wasn't some type of religious institution to them. They would have completely and totally pictured government. Jesus is using kingdom language here. We just don't see it because of of where we stand in time and our culture and all of that. What I want us to understand with that is that he's always talking in kingdom language. Jesus is clear. He is clear. I am the king. I am the king. He is not afraid to talk about his own authority. And what that means for us is that if we consider ourselves Jesus followers, some, some things are true. Number one, we've been adopted into the family of God. Scripture says that anyone who's given their life to Jesus, has been adopted into God's family. Now we get to call him, him Daddy, like Abba Father. There's a relationship that we get with God, and it's intimate and it's close. That's an amazing thing. That is true. If we consider ourselves Jesus followers, that means that we're actually friends of God. Jesus says that he considers us to be his, his friend. We can have friendship with God. That's an incredible thing to think about. That's amazing. It doesn't really make sense. I don't know if you've ever had a friend who's, who's kind of important. Like even just sort of kind of important. You wouldn't have a friend, like you can raise your hand, you wouldn't have a friend who's like kind of important, sort of. Yeah, right? I've, I've got a good friend who's, who's one of his best friends is a former Heisman winner. So he's like kind of important, and so I guess I'm kind of kind of important because I'm friends with a person who's friends with someone who's kind of important, right? To a certain group of people, that guy's really important, to others, they don't care at all. If you are a Jesus follower, you're a friend of someone who's not kind of important, you're a friend of the God of the universe. That's amazing. So that, that's true. You're God's child. You're his son. You're his daughter. You are, you are God's friend. But that doesn't change the fact that he's your king. See, the child of a king is still under the authority of the king. And Jesus, he's... He's our king, which means that when we, when we call ourselves Jesus followers, it doesn't mean that we just like Jesus. It doesn't mean that we just agree with Jesus from time to time. It doesn't mean that there's a few sayings of Jesus that we really, really like and we hold on to those. It doesn't mean that, that we're, we're just proud of Jesus. It means that we have submitted our lives to following Jesus. It means that we see him as our king. It means that we recognize his, his power. We recognize his dominion. We recognize his rule. It means that that our own desires and dreams are not what we're living for. Now, here's the cool thing about God. He says, those who delight in me, I will give them the desires of their heart. But they come from him, not from us. 
that we've submitted ourselves to our king. We see Jesus as our authority, and so we live for his dreams, for his desires. What does Jesus dream about? What does Jesus desire for this world? What does Jesus desire for your life? If you consider yourself a Jesus follower, those should be the questions that you ask that guide everything you do. Not just what do I want, what do I like, what would I like to see happen, but Lord, what do you want? We spend so much time in prayer trying to to get God to see things from our perspective, trying to get God to buy into our dreams. What if we spent time in, in prayer trying to see things from his perspective, trying to buy into his dreams? That would change everything because he's our king and we should submit ourselves to him. If we consider ourselves Jesus followers, that means we obey him. That means when our desires, when our wants clash with what he desires, he wins, not us. That means when what God desires, what God wants, when that stands at odds with our culture, we don't waver and we don't feel shamed that we're living differently than our culture lives because we see ourselves first and foremost as citizens of his kingdom, not citizens of this world because we've submitted ourselves to Jesus and he's our king. That's what it means to be a Jesus follower. But that's hard for us. That's hard. It's hard for a lot of different reasons. Number one, We talked about this last week. We're Americans. We don't like kings. That's kind of why we're here, you know? I remember watching a TV show a few years ago, and there was this political issue, and this British person was weighing in on it. And this British person was saying, well, in England, and they probably said that like 20 times, in Britain, and I just remember the American in me was rising up, and I'm like, we don't want to be England. That's our whole history. That's our story. We don't care. We don't want to be you. That's why we're us. Right? That was like the American in me coming out. We don't need a king. We don't want a king. We don't even like our leaders. That's America. You know? So it's kind of a hard thing to shift from that mindset where we mock and make fun of our leaders and fire them on a regular basis and then having a king and giving ultimate authority to a king. That's, that's a hard thing. The reason that we don't like kings is because if you're in a kingdom, it's all dependent on the character of your king. And history has not, has not borne that idea out very well. Because if that king happens to be selfish, ambitious, then you're in trouble. And most kings are. But Jesus is a different kind of king. His kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is so different, radically different than what we would picture. In fact, it's often referred to as the upside-down kingdom. Because everything we think a kingdom would be about, it's like the opposite of that. It's different, and it's it's a good different. But even good different can be hard to wrap your mind around. And we we have to understand as Jesus followers what Jesus is talking about, right? That's important. What does he mean when he says that? We have to know that. That's what we're exploring in this series. Like, like, think about it this way. Have you ever met someone who, who maybe you're close to and you realize that you think in totally different terms than this person? Like, you just see the world in very different ways. It's almost like they're from a different planet. You know what I'm talking about? Like, are any of you currently or ever have been married? That would be a question I could ask that would just say the same exact thing, you know? I remember early in, in our marriage, my wife and I got into a pretty decent fight. I think I've told this story before, but it's, it was about a TV and a couch. Here's what happened. Um, we moved into a new apartment, and I remember I, I recently bought my first HD TV. That was when it was like they were new, new-ish. And I went to Best Buy, and uh, she wasn't with me because she wouldn't have approved this decision, but I went to Best Buy, and 
And there was this one TV, and it was like the display model, so it was really cheap compared to everything else. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I can afford this, and it's an HD TV. And so I bought it, brought it home, set it up, and, and we had this couch. And one day I come home, and Megan has arranged the furniture in our living room, and she's arranged it so that the couch is not directly facing the TV. It's at like an angle. So if you're going to watch the TV, you have to like sit and kind of like do this, you know? And I'm like, that, that, no. Like men, back me up. Blasphemy. Hello? Like when you go to a movie theater, all the rows are parallel with the screen. They're not like, we have these at an angle. So you can kind of like sit here and look at it like this. No. And so I, I go to Megan like, what? I don't understand why the furniture's like this, you know? The, the couch isn't facing the TV. The armchairs aren't, no, nothing's facing the TV. And she said, this is, get this, she's like, that's because the primary purpose of the furniture in this room is for us to talk. And men, again, back me up, like blasphemy, right? <laughs> We're married, we don't need to talk, right? Like, we definitely don't need to look at each other when we talk. I'm a man, some of the best conversations I've ever had have been when I'm not looking at someone, when I'm driving in a car or doing something. I don't even have to be facing you to have a conversation. We can have a conversation at the kitchen table. We can have a conversation anywhere. But this room is for the TV. That is why this room is here. I want to watch a game. I want to watch a movie. I want to see it in HD. Men, she did not share your enthusiasm in this moment. And so an argument ensued. There have been other things that I realized we just don't, we don't see eye to eye. Like, for example, early in our marriage, I walk in our bedroom. There were nine pillows on our bed. Like, do you know how many pillows I would own if I were single? This is how many heads I have. This is how many pillows I need. One pillow. I walk into our bedroom and there's like, what are all these? Did we buy these? Did we spend money on these? Do you have any TVs I could have bought over the years with all the pillows we've purchased? I'm like, What's the, what is the point? She's like, they're called throw pillows. Can I throw them? No. Okay. So explain the concept. Well, they're pretty, and you know what we do is we put them on the bed. They look pretty every night. We take them, we throw them on the floor, and then the next morning we make the bed. We put them back on the bed, and we do the same thing. So then, the off chance someone happens to be touring our house, they see the throw pillows, and that didn't make sense to me at all. Like you are a weird creature. You're a strange, unique thing that I don't get at all. And we've been married for 15 years, and here's all I can say. The couch now faces the television. Yeah. And we have a ton of pillows <laughs> at our house. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. Megan is, is my partner, and we're equals. We, we partner in our home. And so I've learned in these 15 years, it's really important for me to try to figure out and understand how my partner thinks to see things from her perspective. Our marriage will not go well if I don't see things from her perspective. Well, the same is true of myself and Jesus, but to a, a greater degree. Because even though he's, he's brought me into a relationship and a status that I could never have had without him, he's, he's not my equal. He's my king. He's my superior. I will spend all of eternity worshiping Jesus. And so if it's important for me to have a healthy relationship with my wife, to see things from her perspective, it must be really important for me to see things from, from Jesus' perspective, to have the right relationship with him. And so if we're going to call ourselves Jesus followers, we've got to understand our Jesus. 
And if he's using this language of kingdom over and over and over again, if he's always talking in terms of, of his kingdom and what it's about, then we've got to get our minds around that. That's important. Now, now next week, we're going to start diving into like the nuts and bolts of the kingdom of God. We're going to start exploring all these parables where Jesus says the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like this. We're just going to read it, say, here's what he's saying. To the best of our ability to interpret this, here's what Jesus is saying. But before we, we do that, before we start digging into the nuts and bolts, the details, my hope today is that we just leave here having a basic understanding of what he means when he says kingdom. That's what we're going to do with the time that we have left. And it's not much. So, so let's just ask a few basic questions. Number one, it's the most important question to ask most of the time. It's the question, why? Why? Why kingdom? What is, what is the purpose, what is the why of the kingdom of God? Little kids ask the question why all the time. Like all the time. As adults, we should ask it a lot more. Because it's a really important question. What's the purpose? What's the why? And if I could sum up the, the why of the kingdom of God with one word, it would be the word glory. Glory. Let's look at this. Romans chapter 6, verse 10. When he died, he died once to break the power of sin. But now that he lives, he lives for the glory of God. In John eleven four, 4, Jesus hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. And he says, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Romans six thirteen. Do not let any part of your body become an instrument of evil to serve sin. Instead, give yourselves completely to God, for you were dead, but now you have new life. So use your whole body as an instrument to do what is right for the glory of God. Philippians 2, 9 and 11. Therefore God elevated him, meaning Jesus, to the place of highest honor, and he gave him the name above all other names. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God's kingdom is all about, it's all about glory. And if you're like, what is glory? Glory would be like respect, reverence, awe, wonder, majesty, splendor, wrapped up together, that's glory. It's just, it's glory. I don't know if you've ever like gloried at something. You just stuck, you're like, oh. Like maybe you're a car person and a car drives by and you're like in another world for a minute, you know? You're just basking in the glory of what you saw. God is, is ultimate glory. And the ultimate purpose of, of everything is the glory of God. Like that's, that's the end result. That's why it's so important that we worship together. Like together. Because in heaven, no one's going to give a message. I have no job in heaven. I am out of work. But the worship team, they're fine. Like they're good. <laughs> because we'll never stop worshiping God. There will never be a day where, where we've worshiped him enough. Like, that's, that's the way it's going to be in heaven. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait. Because of his glory. Because he's God. We worship him because he deserves to be worshipped. And when we see him, oh, guys, like, when we see him, can you imagine what that's going to be like? And the answer is no. You can't. You can't. There, there, are, there are beings described in Scripture, in heaven, spiritual beings. We would maybe say angels. When we think of angels, we always think of the wrong thing. We think of what we've seen, like, written about, you know, like, we, we think of a, a nice-looking person, 
uh, that, that maybe has wings, right? There's no description, by the way, of like a human with wings in the Bible being an angel. There is a description of a being covered in eyeballs with three sets of wings. One set of wings is flying around, like flapping, I guess. The other set of wings is covering its body. The other set of wings is covering its eyes. And I don't know how you cover the eyes when you're all eyes, but it's doing it. That's crazy, right? I don't know to, to be excited or scared about heaven when I read stuff like that. Usually in Scripture, when someone sees an angel, they fall down and think they're dead. I said this last week. Every, it reads stories in the Bible about a, a time a person sees an angel. What's the first thing out of the angel's mouth? Don't be afraid. Because they freak us out. Right? Because they're different than us. Now, sometimes we see stories where, where God sends his angels and he like disguises them as us so as not to cause us to freak out because it's super inconvenient if people are falling down everywhere and you're trying to get something done. That's not helpful. I have kids who do that. They throw fits. They fall down. It's like, stop it. Get up. Come on. Like, God's got to do that. But if, if that's our response to seeing an angel, what's our response going to be to seeing God? The same, like the angels, what do you think they're covering their eyes for? They can't handle it. It's like, I don't know if that's theologically correct or not. It's just what I think. But like, he's amazing. And they just sing out. They sing out that he's holy. He's holy. He's holy. We, we're going to worship God and we're just going to bask in his glory. The why of the kingdom of God is the glory of God. Now, here's where it gets cool. Here's where we see the upside down part of God's kingdom come to play. It is not a stretch to think that a kingdom is all about the glory of a king. That's been like every kingdom on the earth ever. But what do kings on this earth do with their glory? They hoard it. They keep it for themselves. Right? Like, people die for their kings. Kings don't die for their people. But our king did. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 17. He's praying. This is right before he gets arrested. One of the things he says, verse 22, I have, been given, I have given them the glory you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. Jesus says, I have given them, talking about his followers, that includes us, the glory that God the Father gave Jesus. Romans 5, verse 2 says, because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. So the glory of God is shared with us. Romans 8, 15 through 17 says, You have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. For his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, together, that actually implies equality. Together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we're to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. A lot of people want to share the glory of God, but don't want the suffering. It doesn't work that way. Like, he gives us his glory. He shares it with us. Do we deserve it? No. Does Jesus deserve it? Yes. Absolutely. And he gives it to us. It's an upside-down kingdom. A king who, who has more glory than any earthly king could ever hope to have. And yet, instead of keeping that glory simply for himself, gives it to his followers, gives it to his people, who don't even deserve it? That's amazing. The why of the kingdom is the glory of God. A glory, by the way, that if you have faith in Christ, you will share. That glory will, will belong to you. 
That's incredible. Let's talk, about, let's talk about the when of the kingdom of God. That's another important question. When? When is the kingdom? Sometimes we see the kingdom talked about as if it's far off. There's a lot of scripture in the Bible talking about a time to come. There's a lot of, a lot of prophetic words about, about the end of the age, about a time when Jesus is going to return. So when Jesus prays the Lord's Prayer, is what we call it, he says, your kingdom come, right, which sort of implies that it's maybe not here. But then we see other times where the kingdom is described as being right now. So when is the kingdom? Is this some far off thing that we're going to experience one day? Yes. Is this some amazing thing that we can have right now? Yes. It's both. It's both. It's both distant and in the future and also right now. And that's a really good thing for us because, number one, that means we have something to look forward to. It's really important to have things to look forward to. It's one of the hard things with us having four kids is, is that because our oldest kid has certain things, sometimes the younger kids, like, like we, we almost get tempted to make sure that they have it now, even though we would have never have, have gotten that for our oldest child when, when they were three, right? And we've had to learn as parents, like sometimes it's good to say no, hold off, because we need you to have some things to look forward to. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. So we have something to look forward to. When we're going through hard things, if you're going through a hard situation right now, if you're going through something you could classify as suffering, I am so sorry. God's heart breaks for you. We want to pray for you. But trust me, what you're suffering right now is nothing. It is nothing compared to what you're going to receive if you remain faithful and you endure through that suffering. It's nothing. You have something to look forward to. Because God's kingdom is going to come in all of its fullness one day. And when that day happens, we are going to, oh, the glory that we're going to get to experience. But God's kingdom is not just a later thing. It's also now. And that's big because that, doesn't, that means we don't have to wait. Waiting's horrible. No one likes to wait. Like, no one enjoy. anyone here say, my favorite thing is waiting? I love lines. The longer the line, the better. <laughs> right? It's the worst it's the worst. That's, that's why we get, ang we get angry when we wait. Let's just show of hands real quick. I want to know this. I want to know who, who we're dealing with here. Um, how many of you have honked at someone who did not immediately go when a light turned green within three seconds or less? You've been like, come on. Yeah. Yeah. Some of you are liars. I've totally done that. <laughs> how many of you have cussed at someone who didn't go? I mean, like, don't, don't raise your hands. You've got a couple of you are like, yeah. <laughs> I honk and I cuss at the same time right? It bleeps me out. That's what the honking's there for. My kids, they just hear bleeps, like on TV. <laughs> We're impatient. But here's the good news. Yes, yes, God's kingdom. It's a later thing. Yes, when this life is done, you have an amazing experience to look forward to. I don't even think we can understand it. That's why when scripture tries to describe heaven, it's like it's, it's struggling to find the words, because there aren't words that we have that can adequately describe what we're going to have in heaven. But Jesus talks about the kingdom right now. In fact, we see this in Luke chapter 17. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, when will the kingdom of God come? And Jesus replied, the kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. He's like, it's already here. You're looking at it. What is a kingdom? Maybe another way to put it is, what is the most important element in a kingdom? A king. And if Jesus is there... Welcome to God's kingdom, because you're in the presence of the king. 
So it's like, it's right now. And what that means is this. That means you don't have to wait to experience the power of God. You don't have to wait to experience the peace of God. You don't have to wait like years and years to experience the goodness of God. You can have that right now. God will give it to you. And as people of God, as part of the kingdom of God, we have to have faith. And we have to have the boldness to say that the power of God, the peace of God, the love of God is available to us right now. Jesus actually told Peter after he said that you're the Messiah, he said, I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Here's the keys. Take it. Some of us need to take what's been given to us. Some of us need to understand who we are and that that by, by the very nature that our God has ultimate authority and he calls us his ambassadors. That's another kingship type language thing. We're the ambassadors of Christ, that we have authority. You have authority over your life. And when Satan tries to mess with you, we just did a whole series on spiritual warfare, you can tell him to stop in the name of Jesus Christ, and he has to. Because Jesus has authority. So when is the kingdom? It's later, and it's going to be awesome, but it is right now. And don't forget that. And two more questions, and we'll wrap up. And these are connected together. Very, very closely connected. That's why we have to look at them at the same time. What and where? What is the kingdom, and where is the kingdom? These are links. You almost can't explain one without the other, and here's what I'll say to that. Jesus says, Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, he's praying. He's actually showing us how to pray. This is the Lord's Prayer. He says, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, it's very common in, in the Hebrew culture that you use two phrases closely connected together, and the second defines the first. It's a very common literary tool. We see it a lot in the Psalms. We see it a lot in the Old Testament. Jesus is doing that here. So when he says, your kingdom come, he follows it up with, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is the kingdom of God. The what of the kingdom of God is this, doing the will of the king. The kingdom is doing what the king wants. It's obeying the king. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus says, if you love me, obey my commandments. John chapter 14, verse 21, those who accept my commandments and obey them are the ones who love me. And because they love me, my father will love them and I will love them and reveal myself to each of them. The what of the kingdom is doing the will of God. What does God want to do? Let's do it. That's something that we've had to learn to pray as a church, as church leadership. God, what do you want? What do you want this church to be? I spent a lot of time in my early years as a pastor trying to to figure out what I wanted this church to be. And it took me a few years, and I'm sad to say that, but it was a few years before I was like, oh, hey, God, this is yours. What do you want it to be? Like, What does God want? That that is the kingdom. It's doing the will of God. That's what Jesus says. If if you call yourself my disciple, my follower, obey me. Do what I, I command. And notice that word command. We don't like to think about words like command. If someone walked up to you on the street and said, I command you, right? If your boss at work says, here's my command, you'd be like, whoa, whoa. No one commands me. But if Jesus commands you, mm, do it. Do it. Because he's the king. And, and that what, that's closely connected to aware. Because the where of the kingdom of God is wherever the will of God is done. What is the kingdom? It's doing the will of God. Where is it? Wherever that's done. Wherever the the, the authority of Christ is recognized, there's the kingdom. So this room right now, it it is deep in the kingdom of God. 
because it's full of people who recognize the authority of Jesus. But when you leave this place today and you go wherever you're going to go this week, there's the kingdom. We like to think of kingdoms in terms of, of geography. We like to think of, of places, nations. And that makes sense. But we live in an interesting time when, when all the land in this world has been claimed. Except for Antarctica. No one wants it. But like everywhere else, someone owns it. And the borders have already been drawn. And we're kind of in an age where we really haven't seen, except in a, a few very specific places in the world, in our lifetime, most of us haven't seen someone try to redraw those lines. Like they're already set. But there was a time not long ago when the world wasn't like that. When the borders and the boundaries were always in flux. Jesus lived in a world like that. A great way for us to think about it, something we'll all connect to, is think of the, of the time of the explorers of this continent. When the nations of Europe discovered this whole half of the world, you know, that had just been sitting here, like, oh, half of the world, we didn't know it was there. And what, what happens? They all start planting flags and claiming that land for their kingdoms. And so some explorer shows up and goes, Spain, this is Spain. And people already live there, and they're like, it's not. It is Spain. Or France. France took Canada, you know. What are you, you going to say about Canada? Like, there's nothing. I'm joking. I don't, I don't have it. If you're from Canada, I'm so sorry. I just... <laughs> I just, I've always wondered, like, okay, if you are from Canada, I'd love to know this short aside. Like, do people study Canadian history? Is that a thing? Can you major in Canadian history if you go to college in Canada? And if so, what do you study? Like, what is that? Like, could there be four years of Canadian history? We got here, and we've been here, and no one's really asked us to, to have it, and we just stayed here. That's Canada. That's the history of Canada. All right. Canadian rant over. I'm fine with Canada. I have no issues with Canada. Um, go Raptors. But whatever. Like... <laughs> So, so France goes, France, right? England lands somewhere and goes, England, I've claimed this land for my kingdom. I've planted the flag. Because a kingdom is not about geography. A kingdom is about reign. It's about rule. So wherever the authority of a king is recognized, there's the kingdom. So when you leave here today, if you're a, a part of the kingdom... Wherever you go, that place has the potential to be the kingdom of God. That's a powerful thing to think about. So I have this, this question, a couple questions. And we'll just use that, that language of planting a flag. Have you, have you planted your flag? Like in your home, is your home the kingdom of God? It has the potential to be, if you're there. But have you planted a flag and actually declared that this, this home is the kingdom of God. And the will of God is going to be done here. And so, so how do we treat one another here? We treat one another here the way that God wants us to treat one another. How do we operate here in a way that brings glory to God? Have you planted a flag? When you go to work, you have the opportunity to, to plant a flag. It may only be in a cubicle, but that's enough. This is the kingdom of God. This is, not my, this is not my cubicle. This is not my desk. This is the kingdom. I used to wait tables. Did it for years. Actually really enjoyed it. I didn't think in those terms, but every, every day I could have shown up to, to Chili's and planted a flag on my four tables. And my, my guests, my patrons, they didn't know it, but they were sitting in the kingdom. So they were going to be served like, like they should be served in the kingdom. 
I didn't think in those terms, but I should have. Do you, do you, do you plant that flag and declare the places that you are to be the kingdom of God? And ask the Lord to bring in his kingdom into that place. You should. That's what we should be doing as the ambassadors of Jesus. In fact, we're about to leave here. We're going to pray. We're going to do hands in the pile like we always do. But when we leave here, the kingdom disperses. And the kingdom goes everywhere. The kingdom's going to go to restaurants. The kingdom's going to probably go to Home Depot or Lowe's. Either. They're both fine. The kingdom's going to go all over the place, but everywhere you go, you have a chance. Like, walk in, and even if you want to do this physically, I think it'd be fun. Walk in and just kind of. <laughs> and if someone looks at you and says, what was that? You're like, I just planted a flag. They're just going to walk away because they'll think you're nuts. It's all good. But you plant that flag. Because where you go, the kingdom goes. And where the king is, things change. And I wonder what, what would happen if in our culture, the followers of Jesus took the authority that he's actually given us and started planting our flag wherever we go. Those of you with young kids, when you put your kids to bed, you plant a flag in their room. And you say, this belongs to the Lord, and they belong to the Lord. You do that because you have the authority to do that because you're part of his kingdom. You plant a flag. Ultimately, it begins this way. Has a flag been planted here? Have you given permission for Jesus to plant his flag on your heart? I know many of us have, but if you haven't, man, you should. I know we're not supposed to tell people what to do. That's rude, but you totally should. He's Jesus. Like, I, I don't care what the world says about Christianity. I don't care what the world says about, about churches. The, the world misunderstands what it doesn't understand. Jesus. There is no one like Jesus. There's no one who has the power. There's no one who has the love. Man, that's what his kingdom's all about. He said earlier, if you love me, obey me. What does, he, what does he command us to do? John 15, 12 through 17. This is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I've loved you. There's no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you slaves because a master doesn't confide in his slaves. Now you're my friends. Since I've told you everything the Father told me, you didn't choose me. I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce lasting fruit so that the Father will give you whatever you ask for using my, my name. This is my command. Love each other. That's what his kingdom's all about. How could you not want to be part of that? How could you resist that? He's irresistible. And so if you're here today and, and, and your life, your heart, that's just the metaphor that we use for all of you. If it's still your own little personal kingdom, you need to upgrade you need to allow Jesus to plant his flag. You need to say, Lord, this is your kingdom. I belong to you. Because his kingdom is about love and it's about power and it's about grace and forgiveness and mercy and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. It's amazing. But you got to be part of it. And if you are part of it, when you go out of this place, I'm saying today, plant a flag. Plant a bunch of them. Flag, 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 flag. Everywhere you go. And do the will of God. Love people. Love people. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for inviting us into your kingdom. You chose us. You chose us. Lord, I can't say that I chose you. Because, Lord, in my experience, you came looking for me long before I was looking for you. You're the one who initiates 
our faith. You're the author of our faith. You're the perfecter of our faith. We love you, Jesus. Help us realize the kingdom that we're part of. Help us realize the authority that you've given us. Help us realize what we have an opportunity to do every day, every day of our life, Lord. Help us plant our flags where where they're supposed to be, whether we're at home, at work, at the gym, in our car, at a restaurant, at a store. No matter where we're at, Lord, if we're somewhere and we have you with us, we have the authority to say, I claim this in the name of Jesus for the kingdom of God. It's time for us to claim what we're supposed to claim. Lord, we love you so much. I mean, it's an honor to worship you. It's an honor to be together. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.